We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. Good morning. It's good to be back with you in the pulpit. And uh, as you've probably picked up from the readings, we are going to step back into our series on the book of Leviticus over the next four weeks. We're going to finish this series up. We began in September. And the series is called God With Us because as we've seen over and over again through this book, God's desire, his heart, his longing is to dwell with his people. And the beauty, the good news of the book of Leviticus is that God has made a way for his holy presence to dwell safely among a sinful people. And the beginning of our series, mostly in the fall, we looked at God's provision of that way, the Levitical way, by his provision of sacrifices, of a priesthood, and above all, of a tabernacle, a dwelling place where his holy presence would dwell right in their midst with the people. And that provision of a way in the book of Leviticus, of course, and we saw this many times in the series, points forward to God's final great provision of the way to dwell in his presence through his son, Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all the sacrifices in Leviticus, who is the fulfillment of the priesthood and is the true and great high priest, who is himself the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God with man. And we have great news to share with the world around us because our God revealed in Jesus Christ, revealed in a, in a more mysterious way through the book of Leviticus is a God who longs to dwell with his people and makes a way for them. That's kind of what we did in the first section of this series. And then in the next section in the season of Advent for four weeks, we, we looked at God's call upon his people to be holy as I am holy, he says. So yes, God has provided this way to dwell in his presence, to deal with sin, but he's also called his people to grow in holiness that they might more fully dwell in his presence. The holiness of Israel, and we looked at several dimensions of this. It's nonconformity to the culture around us, but conformity to God. And we looked at this in relation to worship, in relation to sex, and in relation to all of life or life together as well in our communal and societal life also. But the, the call to be holy wasn't an end in, of, in and of itself. It's not just like God wants you to be holy to be holy. But holiness is, is a means or it's an instrumental step to being in his presence. God, what, what God really wants is he longs for you and I to dwell in his presence. So yes, the holiness matters, but it matters as a means or as a goal for the goal of being in God's presence. And interestingly, the means, and this is where we're going to go for the last four weeks in this series, but the means to that goal of being in God's presence, the means for the people of God to grow in holiness is actually that we would be in God's presence. It's both the goal and the means to that goal. It's already happening and it's going to happen more and more. We, we read of this and uh, reaffirmed and actually in Hebrews chapter 12, where the author of Hebrews says, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There's this call to grow in holiness, that which God has already given. And we grow in holiness through his presence. His presence is the means by which we become holy. So these final chapters of Leviticus, this will be our chief insight to explore and unpack over the next few weeks. 
basking in the presence of God then. And his presence is there among the people in the Old Covenant in the tabernacle. His presence resides among us more fully and brilliantly and wonderfully through his Holy Spirit in us, the tabernacle, in the New Covenant. But basking in his presence is the means by which all Israel will grow to holiness. Like garden plants that need ample sunshine to become healthy, robust, and fruitful, the people of God need the presence of God to grow ever more like him in holiness. And these final chapters of Leviticus show us this principle repeatedly. We're going to begin this final section in uh, Leviticus chapter 23, and I invite you to open the Bible that you have in front of you to Leviticus 23. And we begin Leviticus 23 with these words. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. God appoints time, times as holy. And Israel is to maintain these times in their life together. Once again, God is revealing his ways and inviting his people into them for their good. We'll do four things as we look at this text together. First, we'll consider the schedule or the rhythms of the time that God has appointed. What are the appointed feasts for God's people in the Old Covenant? Second, we'll consider their purpose. What do these rhythms accomplish? Third, we'll consider their nature. What, what are their key features, and what does that reveal to us about God's heart and intent for his people? And finally, we'll think about what we can learn from them as new covenant, the new covenant people of God. So first, their schedule. And here, I just want to get the content of this chapter. We only read half of it, and that was still a lot, I know, to take in. But just going to lay out the content of this chapter for us. In verse 3, if you'll look with me, six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Sabbath comes first. Everything else in the chapter is an annual rhythm, but this uniquely is a weekly rhythm. And this makes sense for two reasons. One is that Sabbath is the key sign of the covenant relationship between God and his people. We read about this in Exodus 31, verses 12 to 16. It is the key sign of the covenant between God and his people. So it makes sense that it would be mentioned here as we're talking about rhythms of time. And second, because the Sabbath principle is then refracted through the annual festivals. And we'll see that and we'll explore that just a bit further in a moment. The rest of Leviticus 23 is divided into two sections, and I just want to show you uh, these two sections. First is from verse 4 to verse 22, and look at how that ends at the end of verse 22. I am the Lord your God. And that section deals with the spring annual rhythms or the spring festivals. And then we get section, uh, the next section, verse 23 through 43, which also ends with, if you look at the end of the chapter, I am the Lord your God. So in a literary sense, we're being, these two sections are being marked off by that ending, I am the Lord your God. And that second segment of the chapter deals with the fall annual festivals in the seventh month. So we have the spring in the first section and the fall. In terms of spring, what do we have? We have Passover on the 14th day of the first month. This is March or April in our calendar. And then we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread in verses 4 through 8. 
This is followed by or actually includes the Feast of First Fruits. There's debate among scholars about this. Many think, though, that first fruit, the first fruits offering was actually incorporated into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then we have the Feast of Weeks in verses 15 through 22 that takes place seven Sabbaths after the Feast of First Fruits. So that's the spring. Then in the fall, we have first trumpets, which is verses 23 to 25, on the first day of the seventh month. Now, the seventh month is the most sacred month for the people of God in the Hebrew calendar. So this is a kind of day of preparation for the month that is ahead. Then what follows trumpets is the Day of Atonement, which we studied in the fall from Leviticus chapter 16. It's mentioned in verses 26 to 32. And then finally, exactly six months after the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins, we have the Feast of Booths in verses 33 to 43. This feast and the feast at the beginning of Unleavened Bread both begin on the 15th day of the month, the first month and the seventh month respectively. We should note, though, uh, though not communicated here in Leviticus 23, that the three great feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks later in the spring, and then the Feast of Booths in the fall, are feasts that require the attendance. They're compulsory for every Israelite male. They must pilgrimage to the central place of God's choosing, which we, of course, know to be Jerusalem, to celebrate these feasts together. Women and children were, of course, welcome to attend as well, but their attendance wasn't compulsory. And the attendance of the men of Israel would have been facilitated by the requirement to cease from work around these festivals as well, so they could come and gather together and celebrate. So that's just the schedule. That's our first point. Second, what about the purpose of these rhythms? The Holy Lord of Glory legislates the calendar of his people. He structures and orders their inhabiting of time. He cared about their weekly and their annual calendar. We know that one of the ways that we can show love to someone is to put them on our calendar. In fact, we know that the way that we essentially honor and celebrate a person in our culture is by remembering the anniversary of their birth, their birthday. And that impacts our calendar. Or the way that we commemorate the importance of a relationship that we call marriage is by celebrating an anniversary. And we all know how much trouble we get in if we forget those kinds of days on our calendar. So what God is doing here is God is saying, Israel, I love you. And I want our covenant relationship to be sweet and rich and perpetual. And so I'm taking over your calendar and I'm putting you on, I'm putting me on your calendar. Israel. God is putting himself on their calendar in a way that would actually renew and deepen their faith, strengthen their identity, strengthen their understanding of their covenant king and of all that he has done in their lives and of all that that means for them and for their identity moving forward. That's the heart behind this. And we see God essentially accomplishing this renewal of their covenant relationship in a few ways by his working on their calendar in this way. First, these feasts actually correspond to the agricultural calendar, specifically with the times of harvest. The barley harvest would have occurred around the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and first fruits. The wheat harvest, seven weeks later, around the Feast of Weeks. 
and the olive and grape harvest and the rest of the produce of the land being collected and gathered in at the Feast of Booths. Well, why is this significant? How does this help us understand the purpose that God has calibrated the annual calendar of his people with the agricultural calendar, especially of harvest time? And I would suggest to you it's for this reason. The danger of harvest time, when the barns are being filled, is that this is when the temptation to over-reliance upon ourselves would be strongest. Actually, in Deuteronomy 6, God warns his people about the danger of being filled when they enter into the promised land flowing with milk and honey and then forgetting him, their covenant king. This is how Deuteronomy 6 says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers and you have all of this stuff, that's my paraphrase, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That warning is repeated two chapters later in Deuteronomy 8 as well. And so these feasts around the time of harvest would be a way of Israel being reminded of their covenant king and of his gracious provision for their lives. This offering of first fruits in the spring at both the Feast of Unleavened Bread and at the Feast of Weeks, when, the, when they would wave the first fruits of the sheaf, the first sheaf from the harvest, from the barley harvest and then from the wheat harvest before the Lord, was a kind of symbol of the Lord's ownership of the harvest of all of the land. This was God's land, not Israel's land, and the produce belonged to the Lord. And this represented that symbolically in this uh, first fruits uh, feast. God would, God would own the very first, and therefore he owns all that comes after it. The Feast of Booths actually is referred to in Exodus 23 as the Feast of Ingathering, because there was so much bounty coming in from the land. And this corresponds to that final harvest. And this would have been a time of great abundance when the storehouses really were indeed filling up for the winter to come. And yet it's filled with so many sacrifices offered up to the Lord to honor him, to recollect his presence and his very work in their lives. These annual rhythms that God commanded were useful in working against, against this ever-present temptation to forget God to forget his grace and mercy. They were a reminder of the Lord's remembering them when they were in Egypt. Actually, we see in verse 24 at the Feast of Trumpets, this phrase that this was a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets. God, remember your remembering of us and help us to remember you. This was in fact about being reminded and being renewed in their covenantal commitment. So God's purpose of deepening their faith is through this cal uh, calibration with the agricultural calendar as well. Also, the weekly rhythm of Sabbath reinforced this dependence upon the Lord. The gift of rest on which no work was allowed meant that Israel was reminded that it's the Lord who provides, the Lord who rules and governs the world and ensures that it produces bounty. It doesn't depend on the work and labor of Israel. And so they're forced to shut down that machinery of labor week after week after week to be reminded that it is, in fact, the Lord who provides. You know, overabundance or overreliance, I should say, upon ourselves is a perennial temptation for the people of God. 
In fact, the first pastor of Park Street Church, Edward Dorr Griffin, made this comment about Park Street in a letter that he wrote to a friend on November 24, 1810, before the church was yet two years old. He said, quote, I think there is a change for the better in our church. They seem to be getting the better of their two great sins, pride and dependence upon man especially when God's people enjoy many resources, financial, intellectual, even experiential in terms of the experience that we've had in the world, as the founders of Park Street Church did in fact enjoy, and as we, those who continue to walk in the path that they opened up on February 27, 1809, we still enjoy that kind of bounty and overabundance we are tempted to rely upon ourselves. Yet this is never a pathway of blessing in the life of God's people. And our complete and total dependence upon him is in fact what God desires in his covenant relationship with us. And that's one purpose of these annual feasts. It is to remind them at times of abundance that they depend upon the Lord. But the feasts and we're still just thinking about their purposes, they were not only calibrated to the agricultural calendar, but they were also calibrated to redemptive history. Passover. We all, of course, remember that Passover was the meal that celebrated their miraculous deliverance by God from slavery and bondage in Egypt, followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would have reminded them of the food that they ate, that God miraculously provided for them as they escaped through the wilderness on their way to the Promised Land. The Feast of, Le of Weeks, with seven weeks after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, not explicitly mentioned in Leviticus 23, but later in the tradition would be associated with the giving of the law at Sinai, which did happen, as we know from Exodus 19.1, about seven weeks after they were delivered at Passover from Egypt. They would have been reminded of God's law and the, the gift that his word and instruction was to them so they could learn how to flourish under his life-giving authority. And then the Feast of Booths, or of ingathering, entailed a reenactment of their living in booths as they traveled as a transitory people. Following who, though? Remember? Who did they follow in their wilderness wanderings? The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. It was a tremendous reminder to them of their dependence upon the Lord for taking every step, for knowing which way to go, where to turn. And so this, uh, this annual rhythm actually envelops them in the redemptive events that define their very existence as the people of God. And God is saying to them through this annual rhythm, don't forget that your life depends wholly upon what I've done to rescue you out of slavery and bondage in Egypt and to miraculously bring you through the wilderness into the promised land despite your sin and rebellion. I've done these things for you. And this annual reminder, and it's interesting that it's bookended, 15th day of the first month, 15th day of the seventh month, they're remembering their deliverance out of Exodus. In the first festival, it's focused on the food they ate. In the last festival, it's focused on the, the shelter that they lived in. In both of them, they're reenacting that past event in the present as a way of reminding themselves and the younger generation who didn't live through those events of the foundational events of their lives as the people of God. And they're being called again to depend upon him wholly at a time of abundance. And these feasts, in terms of their purpose of re renewing the covenantal bond and relationship of faith between God and his people are all, of course, about the communion of God's people 
with God. Their celebrations, their overarching tone is jubilance and festivity. God is saying, I want you to feast and party and celebrate in light of my abundant grace before you, Israel. And as Israel uh, marinates through these feasts, seven days in his presence, how, I ask, could they remain reliant upon themselves? To dwell and dine and drink in the presence of the Lord of glory at his command was, be, was to be reminded of his life-giving presence that was the foundation of your life and the provision of everything that you enjoyed. The purpose of these rhythms was to renew the covenant faith of the people of God in the God who provided everything for their need. Let's think then third about their nature before we consider some of their implications for our lives today. Let's just do this with four C's somewhat briefly. But the nature of this annual calendar is, is that it's creational. Stay with me on this. The, the mandated Sabbath at the beginning of the chapter in Leviticus 23 is foundational. And this seventh-day principle, as I've mentioned earlier, is refracted through the annual festivals. There are seven, actually, additional days of rest given in Leviticus 23, beyond the normal Sabbaths. There are two feasts that last seven days long. There are seven paragraphs in Leviticus 23. And the word Sabbath and the very closely related word that gets translated as solemn rest, they're almost the same in Hebrew. Those words appear 14 times. That's seven times two in the chapter. And if we were to continue, as we will in a couple weeks, to Leviticus 25, it's not just the annual rhythm that is rooted in the Sabbath principle. It is the, the years that pass that are rooted in the Sabbath principle in that every seventh year is a Sabbath year. And then the 50th year, after seven Sabbaths, seven times seven, 49 plus one, the 50th year is the year of Jubilee. All of time, God is saying for you, Israel, is to be ordered through the principle of Sabbath rest, which then takes us, and this is why I say the first C is creational, because God is, through the Sabbath principle in the weekly rhythm and the annual rhythm and the rhythms beyond that, God is saying that his intention is to restore Israel to that position and place of creational blessing. We've seen already in this series how the establishment of the tabernacle was... was <clears throat> excuse me, was a kind of return to Eden. It was a restoration of the conditions of creation, that mankind and God would dwell together in fellowship with one another, and there would be life and blessing and bounty. Well, that return or that restoration of creational design is what we see actually communicated in a subtle way through this chapter, but through the Sabbath principle. God is restoring what he intended long ago in his creation. And he's restoring it through his people as a kind of first fruits. One Old Testament scholar says Israel as first fruits guarantees eschatological hope for the nations or future hope for the nations. This hope of creational restoration is seen in places like Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65 and talking about a new heavens and a new earth. And all of that is communicated here. So this rhythm is creational, rest restoring what God originally intended. Second, it's communal. Uh, they weren't commanded to Sabbath rest or annual feasts on their own. This was a communal activity that required planning and preparation and collaboration and coordination. They did this together. 
I, I should be clear, this isn't a sermon about the Sabbath exclusively uh, and how that gets carried into the New Testament people. And there's a lot to reflect on about that. I'd love to come back to that at some point. But there is, in fact, in, our, in the church's understanding today, a growing appreciation for the value of God's gift of rest. In fact, there's probably nothing more countercultural that we could do in our 21st century uh, fast-paced urban society than to rest in a disciplined way as the people of God. So we're growing in our appreciation of the gift that God gave to his people in Sabbath. At the same time, let me just add a little nudge here, our individualistic appropriation of this gift, hey, just make sure you get 24 hours of rest somewhere in your busy week, as healthy as that may be, is not what is envisioned in Leviticus 23. Their calendar given by God is a communal reality, and they are to rest together, to feast together, to fast together, to remember together, to rejoice together. And there's something about doing this together that reinforces their identity as the unique people of God that they are. And we lose that when we highly individualize the rhythms of the people of God. We must find ways to resist the constant beckoning to be individualistic in our culture. So it's communal. Third, to note, it's costly. And what I mean, that I mean in two senses. First, there's a cost to rest. There's a cost to stopping work. That when we shut down the machinery of our labor, we're going to get less done. But this is an invitation to a deep insight that we are not the ones who keep the world moving. Uh, Chick-fil-A is probably the highest profile example of this principle of shutting down work, as much as this may frustrate us on road trips on Sundays. But we are grateful, aren't we, in our cultural context for their example of showing God's call to rest. Can we embrace the cost of resting, of putting down our work, our to-do lists, the constant murmuring of what I have to get done in my brain? simply to savor, enjoy, and marinate in the goodness of the grace of God and his deliverance of us through the cross of Jesus Christ. But there's a costliness in another way, too. All of the feasts contain sacrifices, many, many sacrifices. And admittedly, that's not the focus of Leviticus 23. We read about this annual rhythm also in Exodus 23 and in Deuteronomy 16, but then in Numbers 28 and 29. And in Numbers 29, if you just go there sometime this week and read about the Feast of Booths, that last feast at the ingathering of the harvest, there are sacrifices every day, many, many sacrifices. This is a costly rhythm at God's command that they would bring offerings and sacrifices to him to fellowship with him. Many of those would have been uh, fellowship offerings that they would share a meal in his presence. But there was a cost to this. We've seen before in this series that worship is always costly. And even when you just wake up in your bed in the morning and worship God in your heart, and I hope that you do, it doesn't seem costly, but remember, it depends upon the shed blood of Jesus. Your ongoing communion with God depends upon the greatest sacrifice of all. Worship is always costly, and we see that here. And fourth, it's a corridor. So it's creational, communal, costly, and it's a corridor. And what I mean is a corridor in time. A corridor is a passageway that connects doors that go to different rooms. And the annual rhythms of the people of God in Leviticus 23 provide a corridor that connects past, 
present and future in a powerful, informative way. We've seen how it's, it's uh, calibrated to the redemptive history of God, and it brings those past events through reenactments. This is not just a cognitive remembering, but as they eat unleavened bread and as they dwell in booths, they're reenacting those moments of deliverance that define their life together as the people of God. And those past actions are coming into the present to encourage them and to root them and to deepen them in their identity. And they're also, they're also beckoning for what God will do, especially that creational principle in the Sabbath, is a looking forward to God's final act of restoration and completion that they could only see very dimly, but we can see so beautifully and brilliantly in the redemptive work of God in Christ. And we await that final consummation that's coming. These events were a corridor, these feasts, a corridor between past grounding realities, present encouragement in those realities as the people of God, and future hope of what those realities pointed to that God would one day bring about and spill over from the tabernacle and from Israel to cover all the earth so that the, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. They are corridors in time. So fourth and finally, let's think about their application to us as the new covenant community of the people of God. And I want to break these comments up on application into just weekly and then annual rhythms. On the weekly question, a lot more needs to be said about Sabbath that we won't say today. But I do want to point out that the fact of the matter is that very early on in the experience of Christians, they began to worship on the first day of the week. No longer on Sabbath, which was the last day, the seventh day, but on the first day of the week. And we begin to see evidence of this already in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul encourages the Corinthians to set aside some money on the first day of the week. Or again, in Revelation 1, when John is caught up into a heavenly vision, it says that I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Well, the Lord's day was code language for the day of resurrection because this was the day, this was the event that demonstrated the victory of God at the cross over sin, evil, and death, that demonstrated our genuine liberation from sin, which enslaved us and was a, 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 a difficult and domineering master, and it brought us into freedom. And so this first day of the week begins to develop very early on. Actually, Pliny, a, a non-Christian, the governor of Bithynia, was writing to the Roman emperor Trajan about the Christians, and he said, they gather regularly, this was 112 AD, they gather regularly before dawn on a set day in order to join in singing a hymn to Christ as to God. This daily, this weekly rhythm is picked up by the earliest Christians and continues to this day. It's why we're here right now. We gather on the Lord's day to remember his salvific acts, to hear from him in his word, and to be renewed in our covenantal commitment. And one of the greatest gifts God has given us for this is, of course, the Bible and the biblical word, but it is also the sacraments and the Lord's Supper. And we read that text out of Luke 22 that there on a, in a Passover meal, Jesus takes this ancient rhythm of Passover and infuses it with a new kind of meaning so that it becomes the grounding meal and ritual of the people of God in the new covenant, this meal that we would share in his presence. 
the communion meal, the Eucharist meal, the Lord's Supper, we call it. It has many different names, but this is a meal that is a corridor in time that connects us to our past grounding identity events of the cross and resurrection. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, we're actually waiting for the future that God will come back and make all things new. And we're being renewed and strengthened in the present on the Lord's day as we share in the supper together. And we will do this again, of course, next week as our tradition here is to do it on the first Sunday of the month. So this weekly rhythm continues. What about the annual rhythm? How is our annual calendar impacting our Christian identity? Of course, this Old Testament calendar of feasts in Leviticus 23 is not mandated upon the new covenant people of God. But we do need to ask, do our annual rhythms, and not just as a family or an individual family or an individual, but as a Christian community, do our annual rhythms reinforce and strengthen our identity in Christ? There is a resource that has been developed in the history of the church, and we call it the Christian calendar, sometimes referred to as the liturgical calendar. It's not mandated in the New Testament because it didn't exist in the New Testament by any means. But it's also, and I think this is important to say, it's not prohibited either. Admittedly, some point to Galatians 4 or to Colossians 2 to say that the New Testament prohibits any kind of marking of seasons or special days. But I would suggest that the development of the Lord's Day, even within the New Testament canon itself, suggests that the earliest Christians did think it was okay to mark a particular day on which they would gather to worship and sing hymns to Christ as to a God. Furthermore, Paul actually mentions the Feast of Pentecost, which is our, how, that's how we know the name of the Feast of Weeks, because Pentecostos is 50th in Greek. And so the Greek translation of the Hebrew in Leviticus 23 uses that word, and we've come to know that word. Paul mentions that he'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So he seems to have some notion of this being okay. I want to say our Puritan forefathers reacted negatively to the abuses of this calendar that had developed in the late medieval period of the church, going so far as to outlaw both Christmas and Easter in Boston from 1659 to 1681. Now, we look at that as an overreaction, but perhaps it was a necessary step in those days. These holy days had become occasions of revelry and drunkenness that were not pleasing to the Lord nor reaffirming of the identity of the Christian people with their God. Instead, they were, in, uh, they were encouraging a different kind of life. The Puritan movement, both in England and New England, was aiming in its reforms to recover the centrality and the focus upon the Lord's Day itself, a focus on the Word of God, on the sacraments, and to avoid the excesses in the Christian calendar that had crept in during the late medieval period and that seemed to be, and I think fairly, distracting the people of God from the foundational events of Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So that was understandable. But we live in a different time and understood at its best Many churches in the past century within the evangelical uh, milieu have begun to embrace more and more the Christian calendar as a tool that the Lord can use to give us annual rhythms that strengthen our faith and covenantal relationship with our King. And Park Street Church has a history of doing this that dates back at least to the early 20th century under A.Z. Conrad. The Christian calendar, best understood, is organized around the two central events 
of our redemption. Jesus' birth, the glory of the incarnation that we've just celebrated so wonderfully at Christmas, and Jesus' death and resurrection, which we celebrate at Easter. With the penitential seasons of Advent and, and Lent preceding these two feasts, and then the Feast of Epiphany and Pentecost kind of bookending them at the end of these seasons, the basic calendar can, I submit to you, be quite helpful in aiding us to remember and shape our lives, even mark our time around the central events of the gospel. We are a Jesus people through and through. Why not let the central events of Jesus's life determine how we inhabit time? The question is, which calendar will shape you most? It's not whether you're being shaped by an annual rhythm. The question is, what annual rhythm in the calendar is shaping you? In a wonderful article in 2016, Daniel Brenzel, uh, the article is called The Tale of Two Calendars in the Bulletin of Ecclesial Theology, compares and contrasts what he calls the modern American calendar with the Christian calendar. And he's drawing on the work of a 2008 article from First Things by Michael Linton. And he suggests that the, American, the modern American calendar begins at Labor Day and then goes through a fall season and transitions to the holiday season, which of course begins with Halloween and runs through Thanksgiving and all the way to Christmas and is motivated not least by all the merchandise that you can purchase to support the holiday season. Then moves into a winter break, which of course does have the marking of Christmas, but he notes that Christmas is more featured in the modern American calendar because we love to buy things and it perpetuates our consumer economy and is certainly more featured than Easter is. Then we move into what he calls J-term, which is in January, which has a kind of annual tradition of developing um, goals that we call New Year's resolutions marked by a New Year's Day. There's a Martin Luther King Day celebration in there. And then, of course, the J-term ends with an annual festival, perhaps the greatest festival of the year, Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> this transitions us to a spring semester, which is marked, noted, especially by the holiday of Mother's Day. And then that transitions us into summer break, which, of course, begins with Memorial Day, includes Independence Day, and ends with Labor Day. We laugh, and we should, but every one of us understands this calendar. And then Brenzel notes how this calendar actually fits really well with the modern academic calendar. And do I need to say more in Boston than that our lives all run like this? That we shut down during summer vacation and we start up on Labor Day weekend? It's just the way we have inhabited, we inhabit this. It impacts and shapes us. But Brenzel wants us to think, and I think he's right, to ask whether this calendar may inculcate in those impressed by it, impressed upon by it, ambition, success, and acquisition as dominant values. He observes, quote, that this, the story this calendar tells and invites us to live into underlines the glory and power of money, places us as students slash workers in the role of chief protagonist, and posits for us roles and pursuits involving productivity, achievement, getting the grade or job, and relaxing and purchasing amusement as individuals or family units. And maybe he overstates this, but he continues by saying, time itself is construed less as a gift to be received with thanksgiving and more as a commodity to use in our press toward achievement and acquisition. Something resonates about that, doesn't it? 
We are being formed by our calendar and its rhythms. Perhaps I would suggest to you then there may be great wisdom in the Spirit's work throughout the history of the church and the development of a Christian calendar as a tool of counterformation to the misforming of the modern calendar on our lives. Stripped of its medieval excesses and centered upon Jesus and his word and featuring the Lord's day and word and sacrament as a weekly rhythm of our lives, the annual rhythms of the great feast of Christmas, Easter, Epiphany, and Pentecost, and the seasons around them are powerful tools that can help reinforce our gratitude for the amazing gifts of grace at the heart of our identity as the people of God. Robert Wilkin writes about the Christian calendar in the earliest centuries and says, through ritual, it imprinted the biblical narrative on the minds and hearts of the faithful, not simply as a matter of private devotion, but as a fully public act setting the rhythm of communal life. I would leave you with a question. Are we more shaped by Good Friday or by Black Friday? And the answer to that question is we are shaped deeply by both, the question I want you to wrestle with is which one shapes you and us more? It's an honest question. But I think as we participate in the annual rhythms of the modern American calendar, we can be encouraged to take up in the spirit of Leviticus 23 and God's design for his ancient covenant people we can be encouraged to shape our annual rhythms around the central events of Christ's birth, life, death, and resurrection, ascension, and then the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost as a means of renewing our gratitude, our dependence upon our covenant King, the Lord Jesus. This will, of course, be communal, must be communal, and it will be costly but it will deeply connect us as a corridor to our foundational events and our future hopes, which inform and animate our lives because they remind us of the grace and love of our Father. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. God, we thank you for the wisdom that we learn, even from these ancient patterns that you gave to your people long ago. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, to be a countercultural movement whose rhythms weekly and annually are shaped by the gospel, that we would become more and more a people who are reliant not on ourselves, but on you. God, we love you, and we desperately need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.